Welcome to season two of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, brought to you by The Bold Italic. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Yasha K. Kiswolf. So, Yasha. Sunil. You want to tell everybody about your secret life as a billionaire? Well, if you mean billionaire with like a lowercase b, which means you really have just lots of hundreds... Absolutely. Let's let me tell the story. <laughs> well, you're for the record not a billionaire, at least as far as I know, unless you're holding on to some cryptocurrency that I'm unaware of. Yeah, it's not doing so well right now. <laughs> but you do like restaurants. Love restaurants. I love restaurants generally, but I really have an affinity for the Bay Area and the restaurants here in San Francisco. One of my favorite restaurants is Flower Plus Water. Absolutely. Awesome restaurant. Difficult to get a reservation at? Hard to get a reservation in part because Everybody loves the restaurant. But the other is that they actually don't offer a lot of reservations. And the, the pizza is excellent. But what if, you know, you were there, just showed up one day, and you were a billionaire? Would you be upset if they didn't let you in? Maybe. Uh, but this sounds suspiciously like a story that I think I know. Yeah, so there is an urban legend about Steve Jobs that has been sort of widely circulated in San Francisco lore about a time where he wanted to just walk into Flower Plus Water and wasn't admitted. It kind of put flour and water on the map, to be honest. I don't think you could buy better marketing than what happened. We decided to reach out to David White, who's the owner of Flower Plus Water and Trick Dog, and is a famed restaurateur here who's been in the game for a long time to set the record straight on that job story. And, and I'll tell you what, David is a pretty awesome guy, like a kind of guy that you just want to hang out with. Probably wouldn't hang out with me or you, maybe, but probably not. Just an awesome guy. And just been successful over and over and over again in the restaurant business in San Francisco. That's kind of unheard of. Yeah, I really like David. He's a great guy. He is successful, and we are excited to have him on the podcast. Enjoy. Hey, thank you very much for being here today. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, I detect a little bit of an accent. Yes, yeah. <laughs> a little bit are of Are you a San Francisco native? No, definitely not. <laughs> uh, I'm from Ireland. From Ireland. Yeah. Where in Ireland? Uh, Leash. Which is in the Midlands, no one's heard of it. How many goes there? <laughs> when, uh, when you were growing up in Leash, did you ever think that you would be in San Francisco? Uh, probably not. I think as I got older as a teenager, I, I had a strong desire to leave Ireland, which was more of a desire to leave rather than go somewhere else. But uh, I, I don't think San Francisco specifically occurred to me. Yeah. And what's leaving mean for you as a kid growing up in Ireland? Is that moving to continental Europe? Is it moving to the United States? I was a young teenager in the 80s and, you know, sun holidays, go to the resort, bake in the sun, sit by the pool. You know, that was the kind of thing that was in vogue back then. And we did that. You know, I don't know yeah. if you grew up in Europe, but it's, it, travel is, is easier there and... Certainly, everything's more proximate. But uh, we would do a sun holiday for a week or two weeks. Every two years, we'd go places like France, Spain, Portugal, Canary Islands, that kind of thing. You know, it, it, I think it just, the possibility of travel was very open yeah. to us, you know. And then when I was eight, I did went to boarding school for high school, so I was kind of stationary for that period of my life. But once I got the green light to venture out when I was 18, my parents said I could travel on my own in the summer, and, and I just started traveling a lot then. And at any point in time, had San Francisco or the U.S. ever been a part of that mix at all? No, no, never had a desire. I guess my impression of the U.S. was the chart show on Saturday mornings, the kind of glitter ball and Whitney Houston, Bobby Brown, that kind of thing, and we kind of thought it was a bit ridiculous. Yeah, so uh, the reason I ended up in the United States... You know, I'd been traveling a lot in Western Europe during college and stuff. And then my brother 
mentioned to me he saw an ad in the local newspaper in Dublin and was going to apply for a visa. And I said, sure, you know, put in an application for me too. And as luck would have it, the lottery chose me and not him. And I just kind of went through the process and fast forward a year, I had a green card. So I was in Ireland, living in Ireland, had a green card, wanted to leave. I'm like, you know, go to to the States, why not? So you end up here in... San Francisco. I was supposed to be on my way to New Zealand. That was the plan. I wanted to go to New Zealand. I was going to go spend a year or two in San Francisco and then go to New Zealand. But you, you end up in this stopover or what, what exactly happened? Uh, new girlfriend, ran out of money. There's always a reason to, to not go. Or, you know, plus, I mean, San Francisco is a pretty amazing place, you know. So, so you're, you're here in 97. Yeah. 97's kind of an interesting time. It is uh, downward spiral com. Witnessed that. Saw the kind of tail end of the ugliness of the opulence. And Were then you living in San Francisco? Proper? I was, yeah. I've, I've only actually lived in two apartments ever in the 21 years I've been here. I lived in Coal Valley, 97, until about 2004. And then I moved to the mission. And I still live in the apartment that I rented in 2004. That's amazing. Actually, you might be the only person I've ever met that has done that. We, yeah. we were like a family of five in our house. And uh-huh. We've been in the Bay Area for eight years, second time through, and we've moved five times. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, yeah, I like not moving. I like not moving. And uh, I was really fortunate with the apartment I moved into in 2004 that it was big enough for me to kind of grow into. I also have uh, three young kids. It's a little tight right now, but it's, it's rent controlled. And honestly, that's the main reason I can still live in San Francisco. And it's convenient. It's close to work. I'll probably move in a few years' time. We previously had Eileen Rinaldi, the founder of Ritual Coffee Roasters, mm-hmm. on the uh, on the show. So you're actually our second, you know, restaurateur mogul uh-huh. type. But you know, one of the things that she talked about during her interview is the changing landscape and how things have changed post, you know, 2008. Because we are in this yeah. next 10 year. Boom. Yeah, and change has been accelerating also from my perspective. It's just the changes that we were observing 10 years ago or even five years ago, it seems so much more dramatic today. Describe that change from your perspective. Well, the biggest challenge for us in our industry is labor from a number of perspectives. The cost of labor, even though people still can't make a living wage, but the challenges. With us, I mean, this is a whole different issue that if you talk about tip credit and the fact that we are required legally to pay minimum wage to people that walk away with $300 in cash tips, which puts pressure on our labor model and means that we're, our hands are kind of tied in terms of how much we can pay other people that don't make tips and the laws that mitigated access to tips for people that actually are involved in the guest experience but don't touch the table. And this, this is a very much talked about issue, but that is a big challenge. So the cost of labor is an ever-growing issue for us, uh, but really the scarcity of it is the big one. The labor pool has been decimated, is the only way to describe it. It's been a trend where, if I look back, when we opened Flower and Water, this is a fun story, when we opened Flower and Water nine years ago, we put an ad on Craigslist. We're a couple of months from opening, you know, the world economy had just crashed. Restaurants were closing left and right. You could actually afford to live in San Francisco 10 years ago if you were a service industry and uh, we got 800 responses to an ad on Craigslist for opening a new restaurant, hiring all positions, the usual kind of thing. We got so many responses, we went through them, we just deleted the 200 worst applicants, 600 people, and we set up open interviews for two weekends, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, come anytime, group interviews, interviews of five, and we processed through, in the end, probably 500 people over two weekends, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. 
today, if we put an ad for any position, we are lucky to get one or two or three responses. Of those responses, a resume or an individual that we would have seen even five years ago, we would have said, nah, probably not a good fit. Today, the conversation looks more like, what? You want to work in the restaurant industry? You have no experience? No problem. We can train you. Come on in. Yeah. Are you a nice person? Yeah. C come meet us. Do a stage. That's the reality. And it's really changed quickly and the, the rate of change has accelerated. People can't afford to live here is the main reason. Cost of living, the, uh, the complete scarcity of housing, the cost of housing is the big one. The absence of housing, of inventory out there, people that want to rent. Migration to other industries. Like we had a very nice girl worked in our events department. She probably made 50, 55. She's kind of at 8,000 a year. She was an admin assistant five, six years ago. She now works at Twitter, I think. She probably makes double that. I don't know what she does really, but it's hard for us to compete with uh, those industries, which will probably you know, lead us to another conversation. And then also even people that have food service within their buildings, their office buildings, their campuses, whatever, they can offer full benefits, six figures to someone to come and work a nine to five, making and having weekends and benefits and holidays. And, and we, we just can't compete with that. So that seems like super doom and gloom. And, and I say yeah, that in you can choose to look at it that way. That's yeah. just the, they're, they're just the facts. Uh, how you process those facts and what you do about it is, is a matter of individual choice. So that's a, that's a, a really nice segue into a question that is popping in my head as you've been talking about this. Like you and your partners have, dare say, had a pattern for success. Right? Yeah, we've had our failures also, like anybody. But you choose yeah. to stay here. You choose to stay in San Francisco. And yeah. before we sat down to turn on the recording, you'd mentioned that you've got a project that you're currently working on right now. Yeah. Like, why Why keep doing what you do here? Uh, and let me be super clear. Like, I'm a fan and I appreciate yeah. what you do. Well, we are here. Together. And for whatever reason, we've survived. And we're doing fine. Uh, we have 130 employees in our company. You know, 20th Street is our home base. It's We have three businesses on that street on a two-block stretch. It was very different when we started there 10 years ago. It's, you know, a completely different neighborhood now. We kind of had that vision and actually was a goal for us to see that evolution. We all live here. We have family. We have history here. We have networks, friends here, or, you know, gym we like to go to, whatever it is. But, uh, you know, we're here and we exist and, and we're going to try and keep existing. The part I don't, I don't want to say I don't buy, but I want to hear more about is that for whatever reason we survived. What is the reason you survived? There has to be more than that. It doesn't feel like it's an accident that you have multiple successful projects. Honestly, when we opened Flower and Water, which is inarguably our most successful enterprise, it was a very different time. We kind of talked about that. The world economy had just melted down. There was an incredible surplus of labor. Uh, restaurants were closing left and right. And uh, we were offering something, you know, people were tightening their belts and it's, there's still people still want to go out. A lot of people in the city still have wealth no matter what happens in the economy and, and still want to go out and eat, don't cook. And pizza and pasta is a kind of a comfortable product idea, emotion, childhood memory, whatever it is. People can go and eat pizza and pasta without feeling like they're doing something amoral uh, in a time of crisis. There's the story about... Steve Jobs coming to your restaurant and getting walked out. I don't necessarily want to talk about that. Well, I can I can tell you and anyone that listens to this the truth of the story and yeah, it'd be oh, interesting. If there's a truth, let's hear it. Let's talk about that. But there's also another piece about what I think you've done that's been pretty unique with your partners is that you've set up places where it's kind of equal access. 
to the best yeah. of what it is that you do. And that's a pretty unique approach. I don't feel like that is something that your competitors, if you would call them competitors or your compatriots in the industry, all do the same. Yeah, not everyone does it. I mean, it, the whole the reservations versus no reservations, you know, as a person who's, you know, putting a lot of energy and time and a lot of capital at risk, investor capital at risk, you know, you want to know that you have guaranteed people coming into your restaurant next Tuesday or Thursday or whatever it is or next week or next month. So having reservations allows for that kind of certainty. You know, we try to analyze different groups of people and understand what they want and what they like and what their preferences are and how to make it easy for them like any business. So we kind of think that some people want the convenience of making a reservation. Yeah. You know. Except for Steve Jobs, who you kick out of your restaurant. Absolutely untrue. So <laughs> Steve Jobs walked in with, uh, he was with another one or two people. He, uh, of course, you know, there was someone standing, a few folks standing around outside, people waiting to get seated. And somebody saw him. And it's, you know, for someone in the tech industry, it's akin to a Christian seeing Jesus and freaks out like, oh, my God, Steve Jobs takes a picture, goes online, goes viral. A friend sent me a text from Australia the next day saying, oh, I heard you kick Steve Jobs out of your restaurant. That's how that got out there so quickly. But he was extremely polite. He walked up to our host and said, I'd like to come in for three people. I think it was the host said it's about a 45 minute wait uh, right now, but we can get you on the list. And he said, ah, oh, you know, I, I don't really have the time right now. Maybe I can come back another time, but thank you very much. And he left. And that's it. That's how it went down. He was perfectly civil and polite, didn't look for any special treatment. We didn't give him any. And it was just a really normal exchange. And he came in for dinner a few weeks later. We got him a reservation. So, Was that great marketing for the restaurant? Oh, you can't pay for marketing like that. Are you kidding me? <laughs> in San Francisco? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the weird lightning in a bottle moments for Flower and Water. Yeah, you can't really repeat the success of that restaurant. But there was a time, there was an intersection of a lot of different things, different peoples. It was an interesting intersection of a lot of different things that you can't really recreate. Well, if you want to recreate something, we can kick Sunil out of one of your restaurants. I'm not sure it would have the same impact. No offense. I don't, think, I don't, think, I don't think it would, unfortunately. Uh, I'm not, but... Maybe someday. So you talked a little bit about how the labor difficulties mm. and how that's changed, but what about the clientele? Has the clientele shifted at all because you have... The market's changing. I mean, go beyond the individuals. Yeah, the individuals have changed. I'm not going to get on here and join the bandwagon of people, you know, insulting this new generation, whatever. We're in a cosmopolitan city. Times change. People change. We're at the nexus of evolution. I don't believe the city should stay the same always. And I got here 21 years ago, so I lived through the bubble bursting on .com and witnessed that as well. And from my perspective, that was a lot worse. The sense of entitlement and so forth that was in the air. But yeah, customers are changing, but I think more significant the way in which their preferences are changing. You know, I mean, people don't go out as much. People like to go home. Obviously, tech has played a big part in bringing our product to different venues uh, through different means. And the reality is uh, millennial generation and Gen Z live through their phone and, and, and exist through apps and want to curate their experience. So we've had to just kind of embrace those things. But, you know, Fire Water is a relatively small restaurant. There's only one of it. So, you know, I won't take it for granted, but I say it's relatively easy to have it be busy each day of the week. So to your point about 
tech changing the the landscape? How have DoorDash, Zero Cater, Eat Club, all of these food delivery mm. services affected your business? They haven't negatively impacted our our businesses, but they've definitely made a lot more options available to a much wider audience and they've made things much more competitive from a price value perspective. I think the public is very price value sensitive even though we obviously see that tech is on a tear or in this crazy time of growth but I really think people have a lot of options now and it's easy. They have a lot of access. They don't have to go somewhere. Not only do they not have to make a reservation, they don't have to get in line, they don't have to put their name down and wait, they just have it come to them. They just pick up their app. It knows their preferences. It's credit card information's in there already. You just push a few buttons and the food shows up in 30 minutes, you know, so. I'm sure you've seen this news about the uh, potential change on the ballot around tech companies serving their employees' lunches. Yeah. Let's just say it were to go through. Mm -hmm. You know, what's your general perspective on that rule? It doesn't feel unfair. I'm looking at downtown for a potential location for a new restaurant. If I look at Facebook going into that, they took three quarters of a million square feet of office to the whole building. Everything is available inside the four walls of the building, whether it's bocce ball or micro brews or, or lunch or massage or whatever it is. It's obvious that the company doesn't want its employees to leave the building. And then you look at Salesforce. Salesforce doesn't have anything inside the building because they have a policy that comes from the top of wanting their people to walk out of the door at lunchtime, get some air, energize the neighborhood, support the businesses, create community. Clearly, I'm going to feel better about the second scenario. I think it's really important to have a perspective of what you think needs to happen for the culture to continue to improve or to nurture a more diverse set of experiences. And and I think this that kind of homogeneity that comes from a lot of the tech culture that like all this stuff was born by the way up in seattle with microsoft building the campus because nobody wanted to leave Mm -hmm. and then it kind of found its way back down here to google and grew out into some of the other big campuses as well but whatever that's my i made that story up maybe that's not true but it feels like it's true and i don't know that it's very healthy like i work in tech well look at if the city loses bookstores it loses cafes if it loses restaurants if it loses all those things they take away from the richness of the city they take away from the things that make san francisco special and unique so so we have a new mayor here and if you had the mayor sitting across the table from you as a successful entrepreneur in san francisco what do you tell her the number one priority for her needs to be I'm sure she has a lot of priorities. I wouldn't make an assumption. I would give her my own perspective. I kind of feel that uh, Mayor Breed is coming into a really difficult situation that she didn't create, but she's inherited, and she's got a really, really challenging time ahead of her. I believe the growth over the last decade was mismanaged. I mean, I've lived in the same house on Guerrero Street for 14 years. I walk out of my house every day, and I walk down the street, and it progressively has gotten worse over the 14 years. It's dirty, it's filthy, there's human feces on the street, there's shit all over the place. I walk to Whole Foods a block up the street with my two-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old, and I've trained them how to identify syringes and not to touch them, and it was never like that. So on the street, it's worse than it's ever been. 
from my perspective. So how did the city manage all of these resources that are just pulsing through the veins of the city? Where are they? As a regular resident, regular guy walking down the street of San Francisco, I don't see it. My car gets broken into all the time. My windows get smashed. I mean, the police are overwhelmed. But you don't even bother calling them. Like, they've got other things to deal with, you know? There was this huge homeless encampment along 13th Street under the freeway where there were like hundreds of people living there. Firstly, my God, what about those people? Where's the help for them? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of things there. I think the root is mental illness, but then that manifests in a lot of other ways. I suppose the big one is drug use. But um, what's the city doing for those guys? And then while I have empathy for those people, they're, you know, eroding my quality of life also. I don't want to have to teach my five-year-old to not pick a syringe up off the street outside the apartment that I live in, that I've lived in for, you know, a decade and a half. It was never like that. It's the worst it's ever been. So would you ever leave or consider leaving? And if you were to... Mm, I certainly will leave, yeah. I won't have a choice. I live in a rent-controlled apartment. I've got three young kids. It's fine right now. They're young, but eventually we're going to grow out of it. And eventually I'm probably going to go, like most people, go to the suburbs. Or I'll move out of San Francisco, somewhere nearby, I think. You do think you'll stay in the Bay Area? Uh, potentially. I think so. I mean, I've become really curious about Los Angeles recently. I'd never been down to LA. I had that prejudice about LA being a different kind of place. But uh, I have been down a couple of times this summer just checking out that market and, and looking at real estate and meeting with people in the industry, just networking. And it's really interesting. So I, I, there's a, so much more to Los Angeles than I imagined. I had a couple of incredible trips down there. I really enjoyed the richness of the people that I was meeting and, and seeing the food culture down there, the way that it's epic. It feels very energetic and it's the opposite of San Francisco, where San Francisco are in this tiny little space and the industry has never seen a period of growth like the last five years. So there's incredible competition for tiny availability of resources and like real estate, employees, whatever it is. And it's so hard and it's the opposite down there. Where do you take your family with your three kids out to dinner? I take them to Flower and Water, honestly, because my eldest had her first experience of Flower and Water under the table when she was a few weeks old. It was the first place we went to dinner, and we've been going once or twice a month, and they like pizza, and you know, so. Your best friend comes up to you and says, I want to start a restaurant tomorrow. What do you tell him or her? You know, it depends on who that friend is. If, if there's someone that says, I like to eat, I'm qualified to open a restaurant, I might have a different conversation as versus if there was someone that's opened restaurants and said, I want to open a restaurant, another one. It's a really, really, really tough business. And, and San Francisco is one of the toughest places you can do it. And it's getting tougher. So we'll, uh, we'll ask you a couple last questions mm-hmm. here uh, with the time we have. So it doesn't sound like you're very much of a social media guy. I am not personally, but I definitely see the value of it. I, you know, flirted with Facebook a few years ago. I haven't used it in two years. Uh, I don't like it. I'm not into it. It's just a waste of time, you know. For me, just the garbage that's on there. I want to delete the whole thing, but it's just so hard. It's so hard to get in there and get off and get your stuff, get out. And then I use Instagram a little bit. I have five siblings. One lives in London. The other four live in in Ireland. We all have kids. And Instagram for me is a nice way to watch the kids, pictures of them growing up on vacation, going camping, whatever it is. So I like it for that reason. That's the reason I got on Instagram because it's just images. And I like images like photography and, you know, pictures of Sazmores, all that stuff. But uh, I enjoyed Instagram, but I'm kind of getting sucked into it. The broader use and I'm kind of feeling disingenuous and just wanting to get out, you know. 
know. So putting on your disingenuous hat, who's your favorite person to follow on Instagram if you follow any celebrities? Don't follow too many, but I would say maybe Dave Kalama. Dave Kalama is a really cool guy, lives in Hawaii, used to be like a competitive windsurfer back in the 80s and big wave surfer. He was like a pioneer with uh, on the big wave stuff with Laird Hamilton doing all the towing stuff. And now he does a lot of stand-up paddleboarding, surfing, which I do. And he's just a super cool, authentic, good human. I don't follow him because he's famous. I follow him because I like seeing pictures of him surfing. The question is how much of what he, what he shares is reality. Oh, it's all true, yeah. I just want to put a post up there of the worst moment of my weekend. Just say, here it is. This is the actual truth. It's my kid melting down and throwing a dirty diaper at me. Yeah, yeah. I had I had that idea for a business uh, a few years back. Throwing dirty diapers at people? No, no. The, uh, the anti-Instagram. Isn't it uh, funny how it's the kind of mirror image of news? News is bad news is the only news it's sensationalist it's negative they put all the craps you know rises to the top and instagram is the opposite which is the greater truth i had a friend post something about you know trump or whatever and within a minute and this is like a you know a rant on facebook about the latest trump thing moments later on instagram posting a selfie in some place from paradise same person i can't deal with the whole trump thing honestly it's the darkest shit in my mind right now I can't believe that this is the world. This is the country that I live in. It's really disheartening. I can't even read it. I mean, he called a lady a dog a couple of days ago. I mean, what the fuck? I mean, this guy's the, the president, the leader of the free world. Like, where? who is this guy? Like, what is his deal? I mean, that's, that's obviously not the worst of it, but I can't even read the stories about him anymore. They get more and more bizarre and outrageous. And how can anybody think this is a good human being? Yeah, well, he's like the Fox News president. Well, we really need just the Instagram president. So I've really enjoyed the conversation today. Oh, likewise, um, thank you. The work that you and your teams have done and the restaurants and the bars that you've opened, I think have a very significant impact, in at least in the circle of people that I know. So Yeah, and there's a lot of, there's an army there, you know. I could Absolutely. never stand here and say that's me. There's I have many wonderful, talented partners. And like I said, we have 130 people that make up our company right now. Do you want to talk about anything that you would care for the community that listens to this podcast to know about what you and that group of 130 people are up to that they should be excited about? We're taking Flour and Water, our greatest success, strongest brand, and we're launching a new concept, pizzeria concept. Actually, I just signed a lease uh, this morning on our first location. So it's a big day for me. It's a fun day today. So we're, we hope to open in uh, in spring. Uh, we'll certainly open in spring. I think early spring next year. It's going to be a quick turnaround. You know, our plan is to do more than one. So, you know, we're, we're probably going to do a couple here. And who knows, maybe L.A., looking at L.A. seriously. And uh, Petaluma. You know what? Petaluma is one of my favorite places in California. I love Petaluma. I'm thinking of moving there. That is number one on my list of places to move if I stay in NorCal. This has been fantastic. Yeah, Yeah. thanks for uh, joining us. My pleasure. Uh, This has been great. We hope you enjoyed today's episode on This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley. If you liked today's podcast and you like Sunil, like I like Sunil, please go to any of the app stores where you found our podcast and rate us five stars. We'd appreciate it.